Hello everyone and welcome to Dolly Back, the film podcast where we indulge and defend our favorite movies, whether they're beloved classics, forgotten gems, or misunderstood masterpieces. My name is Eric Meyerhofer and I'm an undergraduate student studying film and also an off-the-clock movie geek. And joining me as my co-host is my friend and classmate, Krishiv Parmar. Hey man, excited to be here, excited to be here. Fourth year cinema study student, art history, poli size. So as you can imagine, you know, there's a really nice intersection between those three and I'm super happy to like dig into all of that as we proceed through the pod. Absolutely. It's kind of funny too that you mentioned art history because I mean, I'm also an art history minor and it was just, this, this podcast kind of felt meant to be for both of us because we, we, we've been in school together since first year, but you know, there was a bit of downtime given COVID and like we couldn't really meet up at all during third year. So, you know, now, now that we're in our, our last year of undergraduate, it, it felt right to just get on a podcast and talk about our our opinions, you know, for whoever wants to listen to them, which is kind of, I guess, a good reason to talk about why we made the podcast on top of that. And that is probably any of you listening are thinking, why do we need another film podcast? There's already so many. And honestly, that's a that's a good take. That's a fair take. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know uh, argue with you on that one. But what I will say is that Dolly Back for us, I think, is going to be a podcast where we, it's a, it's a conversation, but it's also us pulling in academic resources as much as we can, and also just as much cinema, academia, and study. Maybe that another conversation show might not do. What do you think, Krishiv? I mean, I think generally, like, I don't, you know, you never want to talk down to your audience. So, like, you know, the prospect of making, you know, these materials accessible, because I know I definitely struggled with them the first time I read them. You know, they're very dense materials. If there's, you know, any way at all the pod can, you know, sort of, you know, pique your interest in that kind of material, you know, deeper film scholarship, we've probably done our job. And, you know, it'd be good. It'd be nice to do that while we're discussing our favorite movies, you know, or, you know, films that need a reappraisal. So totally looking forward to that. Sounds like a great time. Absolutely. And just one last thing on the topic of scholarship. I think I think reading scholarship and, and whether or not scholarship is like a book or just a, an essay that comes out with a film's release, like the essay that we're uh, going to get to uh, later in the episode for this week's movie, I think it kind of it, it deepens the appreciation for a movie and, and knowing somebody else's opinion, especially in, in, in written form. You know, it's one thing to scroll through your letterbox activity and to read a paragraph or two of somebody's musings, like what I do, you know. But to read something that's been edited and something that, you know, is actually a conceited effort by somebody to, to put thoughts into words about a film, it, it's, it's just, it's a good way to, to strengthen a bond with the movie, I think. Yeah. And just without, sort of, without sounding too film bro You know, that's also sort of the, you know, the fun of podcasts. You sort of, you know, grow your ability to talk about film and, you know, you discover things on the fly. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I guess enough about us. We're just two uh, two schmucks sitting in our <laughs> rooms right now talking about a movie. We'll get right into this week's film. Krishiv, do you want to introduce it? So this week's film is Throwdown by, you know, the exalted Johnny Toe. This is actually the first film I've seen from him on a recommendation from Eric. So That's... I was very curious going in. I just knew about the Kurosawa sort of influence, one of my favorite filmmakers. So this was like right up my alley. That is just so amazing to me when I told you about Throwdown and I knew that it was your first Johnny Toe movie going into it. I mean, even coming from me, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and act like I'm some sort of Johnny Toe scholar. I've seen maybe six of his movies. But it's always fun to see somebody watch watch a first film from a director that you really have gotten uh, like have you've grown into, I think. And for me, 
I had the benefit of being exposed to, to Johnny Toe in third year, actually, for a Chinese language cinemas course that I took. We watched PTU, which is a crime film that he released the year before Throwdown. Throwdown came out in 2004. And, and Johnny Toe, I mean, you know, guy is just ridiculously prolific. He, he did three movies. He produced and directed three movies the same year as Throwdown, you know, and, and it's arguable that Throwdown may not even be the biggest release that he had compared to something like Breaking News. But, you know, with the Criterion release that just came out back in September, it was kind of hard for me to not be completely obsessed with this movie. Uh, I don't even know what it was, to be honest with you. I don't know if it was like Letterboxd Discord or seeing stuff pop up on Twitter, but Johnny Toe just kind of like occupied this very specific spot in my mind and I knew I needed to consume and just like, you know, involve myself with all his films or as many as I could get my, my grubby little hands on, you know? You know, my first sort of impression of the film, you posted a few screenshots or screen grabs from the film. You know, I was like... I didn't know what to expect when I started it. I really liked the neon kind of aesthetic, the landscape, the, you know, these basic kind of trappings of, you know, film noir, neo-noir, but how that actually worked, you know, in terms of the narrative you want to put out, you know, or the confines of maybe national cinema, like that was a really interesting way to approach the text for me, you know, especially seeing, like seeing it as my first movie was Johnny Toe. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, and it, it's totally, I, I've even read, you know, this is a very personal film for him. We'll get in. Well, I think we'll get into like the illusionary aspect of like the Kurosawa, uh, you know, influence later because yeah, it's yeah. very, very, you know, it's very, very like cut and dry on what he wears on his sleeve. But Johnny like really poured a lot of himself into this film, and I think it really reflects in the way that he handles characterization. And that's not to say that his characters in his other movies are are, are anything less. What was it last week? Or it was might have been this week actually. I, I watched uh, Exiled, which is a film that came out I think two years after Throwdown with Anthony Wong, Lam Sweat. Really, really good and just a really amazing, endearing like heroic bloodshed movie. But there's something very quaint and I think something very comfortable and homey about Throwdown that he doesn't really get with his other you know these these like almost too good too big to be true crime films like ptu and election and exiled and that's what really drew me to throwdown you know even from the beginning of throwdown we tony like rides in on his little vespa and uh and my one of my favorite little sight gags of the of the movie you'll probably remember this is how nobody ever walks around the bar like nobody ever walks around the barrier in front of the Sato's club they always have to do a little hop over it you know yeah even, there's a little like you know stopgap or something there right even yeah, yeah exactly even even Tony Leung Ka Fai or I think yeah I think that's uh that's his uh, last name he you know he does his little hop even though he's like like significantly older and he's like this like esteemed do- master of a dojo but he still like has to unbutton the, the button on his suit jacket and he has to do his little hop over the guardrail like it's it's just a, a funny little uh, a piece of the set that like everybody has to interact with but but going back to the beginning you know tony walks up to the this huge bouncer and he what does he say he's like they start laughing i'm pretty sure and he asks him like how much do you weigh and, and the bouncer's like i weigh like 320 and tony's like oh i can throw you down in one move he's like straight to the point entire film, yeah, he, right he, yeah he is and, he, and like the entire time he has this hilariously like this hilarious shit-eating grin on his face he's like <laughs> you know he's just he's just smiling from ear to ear because we were completely exposed to Tony's character. He just wants to fight. Like yeah. that is from the get go. It doesn't change. He just wants to fight. But I think 
you know, moving from Tony, like, what did you think of the introduction of of, of uh, Cito in the in the club? Actually, like, just sort of going back to Tony, like, I don't mean to, like, sort of skip ahead too much. No, no, no worries. And spoiler alert, you know, for people who are meaning to see the movie, but it does sort of make it, you know, look, all that, you know, bit more heartbreaking when he sort of lies about the glaucoma diagnosis, right? This is someone who's very honest or transparent at first that we think, you know, in order to sort of, you know, fight everyone that he... He sees, but he's also, he's sort of prone to those little character flaws where he's playing his cards a little close to the chest. He can, you know, he'll tell a white lie to get what he wants. So I think that was a really nice sort of layer to the character. And obviously it plays off really nicely. Yeah. You know, with the no, main think, sort of conflict, right? Absolutely. And I think these little, you know, maybe misgivings or whatever about these characters prop up all over the movie. You know, like Tony has his, has this thing about lying about his eye condition. And, you know, to a lesser extent, I think you have Mona as she's getting kicked out of that apartment. She she takes a bunch of fruit from the little the little the altar, I guess. And yeah, she does yeah. She like almost forgets to do a prayer. And then even, you know, Tito is always trying to like steal money from other like, triad members and stuff. Yeah. You know, he's trying to they're, they're doing the wallet swap in the arcade, <laughs> which is actually OK. One thing we I, I need to talk about this right now. Unfortunately, I, I need you to watch PTU soon. but. PTU, there's a scene in an arcade, and it's a very big set piece. And I, when I was watching Throwdown, I was like, "What is this guy's deal with arcades?" It was, it was, but it's, but then I thought about it, and you know, if if you're going for like this underground kind of shtick, this this like this aesthetic of like you have to walk down a certain amount of stairs to get to like this actual like meeting place where all these social interactions happen. But you want it to be like innocent in a way. Like, what's better than an arcade? Like, when you're in this arcade, you're like, there's no way that this is like anywhere above ground. It's like the middle of the day and it's super dark. You can basically smell everybody that's in there. <laughs> the sounds, you know, everything is permeating the screen. And I don't know, like, did you? I also love the, uh, the gag where they're doing the wall, they're doing the wallet swap. And as they, just as they do it, and the other boss realizes he, instead of, when he sees Sato through the crack in the machines, instead of, you know, rationally going around, he has to, like, shove his way through the machines. Yeah, right through. But then Johnny doesn't stop the gag there, and he has his two other, like, goons shove through the machines, too. And then they just kind of, like, they just puff their chests and stand there. They're like, hmm. I mean, I think, like, in general, like, the way, like, he approaches Savage, like, just on the level of sort of... You know, I guess montage or the way he moves through spaces. Like, there's that one scene he confronts them back at the club, you know, at sort of asking for the money once he figures out the wallet swap. You have him just throwing the surveillance video. It's very rapid, you know, quick cuts, yes. right? And then everyone sort of approaches them, you know, for the money that, you know, they've lent out or the money they've loaned. And he's just saying, hey, I'm talking. <laughs> it's very quick, yeah. rapid cuts. Like, it's just the small little things that sort of add to the sort of you know, the humor he's going for, right? Same thing with Savage being the, the one to actually break into the stall that, that Mona yeah. and Sito yeah. are hiding in. You know, like you have that you have that like prolonged like comedic sequence where they're hiding and then, you know, they cover for each other by like peeking down under the door. And then finally like Savage comes in. He's like, I'm I gotta I gotta piss, I'm not waiting. And yeah. he just busts and then instead of actually being mad, he's like well he says he says disgusting couple or something like that, yeah. which I thought was, you know, just so good. And I think it's a good way of kind of alluding to or like getting to the overall comedy of the movie, which I was admittedly kind of taken aback. I don't know how you feel or you felt about it immediately. I mean, obviously, I think it works, but it was not something I, was, I think I was expecting from a movie like this. 
when you know Bo is introduced at the club you know I was a huge fan obviously like you mentioned you know similar to the arcade you know there's a huge focus on just establishing the texture of not only the sort of mise-en-scene you know you have all this cigarette smoke sort of flying around the club there's jazz music playing which you could probably make the argument as a nice analog you know to judo in a way the whole freestyle aspect of it I thought that was really cool and I think just in general one thing about the club scene is that it really sets a bow to be you know, not what you expect him to, right? You're expecting this sort of grizzled, you know, veteran judo master, and you have someone who's down on his luck, obviously. And that really contrasts with how, you know, intense or overwhelming the, the entire sequence of just entering this club is. Because when you, you know, head back outside, Tony's trying to do his whole, you know, judo thing again. The street is completely dead empty. The sound design is dead. You have these very hard contrasts set up in the montage itself. And that also sets up the humor to some degree too, right? As soon as you see Bo... He's not what you expect, so there's a bit of, you know, oddity to the film structure, which I thought was really uh, great, yeah. No, you're totally right. And I also think, you know, credit to Louis Koo, who doesn't even speak a word of dialogue in his opening sequence. Like, we're, we're introduced to, to, to Tito, and he's just so hammered, he doesn't say anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, he's like, he's losing some sort of game, and, and, and you know, Johnny Toe, like, in, in such formal tongue-in-cheekness he, he's like showing him like hammer drinking a pint and then they're like well where are you going you still have eight pints and then like <laughs> there's just this 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 incredible little like this little pan to to all of the beers that he has left and he he's like no nah. he just gets up and and he goes over and picks up his guitar and he just falls face first on the stage and you know the reverse right after that on tony who kind of like looks a bit concerned, but I think like his concern quickly turns into disappointment that like this yeah. guy doesn't want to fight. You know, nevertheless, he goes up and he's like, my name's Tony, like I want to fight you. It was a really just amazing, I don't really like using the word subversion, but it was <laughs> definitely, you know, like this, we're, we're like, this guy looks like this, like, like skinny little dweeb, like there's no <laughs> way. He was a judo champ, right? Yeah. But actually, before we go any further, I did want to double back to the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, because I think there's a lot to be said about that opening, that the opening sequence of Jing, like singing in the in the tall grass and yeah. in the reeds, and then cutting to this like kind of ritual dinner that they're having at the dojo, him and his master, hmm. you know. And uh, I was looking, I think Sean Gilman in his piece, uh, anybody who was up to date with the Criterion release of Throwdown, you might know that Sean Gilman had an essay published and it's a re- it was a really great piece Krishiv and I both think uh, enjoyed it and we'll talk about it more I think throughout the pod but he does mention that the the song that Jing sings throughout the film is actually the theme song from the Sanshiro Sugata TV show from the 1970s now anybody who knows their Kurosawa knows that Sanshiro Sugata was his 1943 debut film and it's just this this very tight 80 minute judo film and going back to what i said earlier about how johnny till wears this kurosawa influence on his sleeve literally from the very first beat of of sound from the the very first scene he has this nighttime cityscape shot that he then you know doesn't cut to he just cranes down into these you know into this very out of place organic scenery it's almost like and paradoxical, it's, it, right? It absolutely yeah. is. It absolutely is. And we'll get to the end of the film later, but his insistence on going back to this setting was just so amazing to me. And I think it's just 
it, it underlines the actual kind of thesis of the movie, whether you want to use that word or not. I think, you know, trying to come up with a thesis for films like these is always just such a, a doomed yeah. task. But I, I think it would have been really easy for him to, to just start the... He could, he could have just started the film in media res, like have Tony show up to the bar. Yeah. But to kind of like immerse this judo film very much in like these almost like mythical rituals that seem to be of judo was... I think such a great decision, you know, the, the, the push in with this obscenely wide angle lens onto the, the title or the, like right before he cuts to the title card, you know, you have this, uh, this wooden shelf in the dojo that, that shows his master's name. And then he cuts to, to, you know, the throwdown title card. And that's when we get into the scenes with Tony pulling up on his, on his uh, scooter, you know, tonally, I think it, it works perfectly to set up what actually becomes Cito's, you know, his 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 journey, like his actual meaning at the end of the film. But I'm curious, like, what did you think? Like, did you think that it was it was a bit jarring to go right into the city or or, or not? Oh no, I mean I mean sort of going back to the point on, you know, Bo's opening, and I just picked this up as you were talking, you know, but the idea that it's like, oh, he has eight more pints to go, and I remember their sequence, I think thirty minutes later, uh, you know, everyone's sort of confronting them, and the guy tells him your liquor store is almost empty. I'm not sure, you know, to what degree, you know, the writing was, you know, aware of the earlier scene, but that is a nice, you know, sort of wrinkle. Sort of going back to the way he, like, he opened the film, and I kind of gleaned this from your review on Letterboxd, if you don't mind me bringing it up, you know, the idea that he's staging a sort of ritual between the weeds, you know, I guess from a compositional standpoint, it's very, it's cool to see, like, all the verticals being evoked, you move from these skyscrapers, you know, to the shot of the reeds, right, they have a very, you know, sort of kind of parallel structure, so the idea that you know, the metropolis is also doubles as a kind of as like a parallel to the city scene you, and obviously we go back to the end of the film you know we have the very it's the same kind of pattern being repeated i think that's a nice thing to set up you know right at the onset because it is very much film about the city about how we find kinship in its sort of negotiations of economy of citizenship the fact that that ideological thing is introduced from the onset i think it's a great compliment to introducing tony right after it's a great opening I think I think you're right. I think you're right to have this, you know, judo as ritual compared to judo as hustle. You know, Tony is like just pulling up, betting money on whether or not he can throw somebody down, right? And yeah. then like immediately after, he's like, "Hey, he's like, without skipping a beat, my name's Tony. I want to like, I practice judo. I want to fight you." For Tony's character, you know, you know, Cito aside or Bo's character aside, Tony is just this like young and up and comer and he's like you know he's trying to find guidance in this what what seems to be like this otherworldly sport almost and like the like aside from tony's like throwdown of the the bouncer the the first actual time that they show judo if i'm not mistaken is after they they steal the money. It's when Tony starts throwing Bo down on the, on the hill, like on the road. Yeah, yeah. And like he's like, you know, Bo's trying to pay him, and then Tony like just looks at the money and he just starts tossing him around. Like, dude, are you that, serious? That's, like, this is yeah, yeah. It's, it, <laughs> yeah. And, and even like the way that that Toe cuts that scene together, it, he you know he's always cutting on action. You know, again, like the Kurosawa influence, but you know he has these 
he's he's doing this in 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 kind of like he's flattening the background like i don't think he was shooting this that wide he was he was shooting it like from a significant distance yeah which i thought was interesting because there's no intimacy to them until you get up and close when when tony has him in a, in a hold on the ground and you know bo just you know like we're like what okay, a cute he's gonna scene. do something he just, what a highlight right yeah 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 exactly and then it, it takes mona like to break up the, their scrum right he, she's like you know what are you guys doing but yeah, and then another thing I think is that's to be said about the opening, the opening bar scene is just how we meet Bo, you know, cast in this blue light, and then and then just the interiors of the club. It's just absolutely gorgeous photography. Like I even it's on my second watch, which I I rewatched it last weekend just before the podcast. I can never get over the colors that they're able to get out of out of that that film stock that they're using, especially the yellows inside. It's and the blues, absolutely... like you, the blues, very taken yeah. by them in like these isolated spaces. Sorry to cut you off. It's just it's, no, it's no. very striking. Yeah, and and even still, the lack of light in some some like during the daytime, their interiors. There's no light except for the light that's peeking through the windows. You know, like the, the very next day when Mona shows up and starts singing, and then Tony out of nowhere starts playing the saxophone and walks into the club he starts playing and then when him and mona stop he walks through the shadows and then he he just he literally walks into a spotlight like it's it, there's spotlights everywhere there's spotlights when there's lights on and there's spotlights when there's lights off it's it's just such i think there are some people that would be inclined to think that this is heavy-handed stylistically yeah. but i just can't get over the idea that this is just it is just beyond the rule of cool to do things this way I mean, that's sort of like, uh, you know, common criticism, you know, of our, you know, sort of our favorite directors, like, man, that's, you know, obviously very targeted criticism of his films, you know, Miami Vice, Collateral, you sort of get the, you know, issue with the kind of digital stock he prefers to use, but, you know, style, you know, in service of ideology, where it's like, it's married to the film form, I don't see a problem with that. I don't think many, you know, cinemajors would see a problem with that. In general, I think you just have to sort of widen the palette, and you'll sort of appreciate what, you know, Toe's going for here. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree. And I think I think I think you have to understand, you know, style as as like a marriage or this like this wed to ideology, right? Like and light plays such a crucial part as we go through the film, which ultimately becomes, you know, the absence of light for Tsito, uh, because he obviously does end up going blind in the end, which is like this big this like anti catharsis almost, or or kind of a catharsis, I guess. But yeah. like we have this like I love I love the dialogue between Bo and Tony when Bo is like, you're not going to believe me, but I actually do have like an eye disease and they just start laughing about it. You know, this is this like chronic disease. It's pretty tragic. This this young guy is losing his eyesight, but it's just so funny. Yeah. Right. And to to kind of go back to light in particular, to to do a lot of the first half of the film or even the first two thirds of the film in these very, you know, ne- in all these neon incandescent drenched spaces, you know, you have the yellow, the yellow lights of the bar, you have the red lights of the neon that's outside of the outside of the bar, like all of these signs, you know, the, the, I, I posted this screen grab to Twitter, but it's also, you know, all over criterion as like the photo of throwdown. It's the, it's the one of, of Tony stanced up ready to, to like fight the bouncer and just he like the colors that toe draws out of these these frames is is absolutely absurd 
but as the film progresses and you know we're we're exposed to more and more natural light and then there's the the one scene where Bo finally kind of re- reinvigorated with the love for judo goes to his master's dojo and he starts playing with the lights he starts flicking the lights on and mm-hmm. off and then it's not until he actually like walks onto the mats that the light stays constant right so it's this it's very much this like enlightened gift that he has and he's also finally he's almost like this prodigal son character who's like finally walking back or like coming back to this realm that he belongs to yeah sorry bouncing off then you know i think there's a really interesting interplay just between you know light and color you know i don't mean to get into you know sort of obvious color theory but you know there's that red handkerchief the bow sort of keeps on him for you know most of the majority of the film and then towards the end there's a red balloon. I'm not sure to what degree you want to sort of correlate these two objects, you know, as some kind of providence or maybe, you know, a reference for the handkerchief, at least to bullfighting, you know, sort of analog to judo, maybe. But the idea that, you know, there's different kind of lights, as you mentioned, you know, used throughout the structure of the film. You have natural light. You know, at the very end, at the, in the judo match, you talked about the absence of light for Bo. And then you have Lee Kong, who's wearing a literal blindfold. And, you know, all they have is a sort of incandescent kind of like coming from the skyscrapers behind them it's not natural it you know at all it's all done in you know this very artificial kind of twilight that they've generated just by setting it next to the city so i think that's a really interesting you know thing to get at or really interesting way to light the film i know Wong Kar Wai you know he has also has a thing for a lot of artificial lighting used you know in you know a lot of Chinese cities so i think it's a really cool way to approach it in this film too absolutely and i think it, it's it's easy to to draw comparisons to to filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai, absolutely. But even like how for so many Hong Kong filmmakers, which I am I am just on the tip of the iceberg when it comes to trying to get into Hong Kong cinema personally. Yeah, they have such they have such a, a consistent knack for capturing this like city, which is very much this this concrete jungle. Like it's it's all manufactured and man made. Like there's no. There's no natural light. There's very few times that they rely on the moon or the sun. So like what you're saying about this like ending scene where it's like this this faux twilight is really telling of how these these athletes are clinging to these like like these morsels of a different world. Yeah. Almost. But I wanted to go back to the red balloon because you brought it up. And I think like now is any a good a time as ever to talk about that scene. Because Sean Gilman's piece, he actually opens with the scene of the red balloon. And actually, I'm going to pull up his piece right now. Because there's a really good... He says something at the end of his first paragraph. And he says, This sequence, barely two minutes long and without a single line of dialogue, is throwdown and the cinema of Johnny Toe in its purest form. Now, when you're dealing with this scene, we see Mona is in a cab. She and Toe frames this in a, in a wide, and she enters. I think I think he tracks her. She gets out of the cab, and then it shows her at the base of the tree in a wide shot, and she sees the red balloon at the top. And then he cuts to the right street, and and Bo comes out from the bar and walks over and starts helping her. And then he cuts to the left after they're done, and Tony comes in on his Vespa, and like these three, you know, wandering souls relegated yeah. to hong kong's nightlife are trying to find this like shred of decency and and it's all about propping each other up because it literally <laughs> turns into this marx yeah. brothers comedy bit where they're doing a human tower t- 
Tony's at the bottom, Bo's on his shoulders, and then Mona's on his shoulders, and they're trying to grab this balloon. And, you know, she almost gets it a couple times. And when she finally gets it, you're like, oh, this is awesome. The scene's over. But obviously it's not over. You know, Tony walks over when they're holding the balloon and they let it go. They just let it fly off into the sky. And and the first time I watched this, I was like, this seems weird because I was almost I was kind of develop, developing the opinion that, you know, the balloon in a way was going to be this like memento of their time together. And, you know, why would you let it go? And, you know, I think the argument could be made that it's like they had to let it go eventually. But also, I think that it's like they're they're letting they're kind of rescuing this little this little piece or this little like this this scrap of of kindred spirit and like kindness and and like they have already found that within themselves interacting with each other becoming friends the balloon has to has to be set free kind of in the same way that like mona has to go and seek out her own opportunities yeah and and Bo has to come to terms with his own disease I mean, yeah, just going, like, I totally agree with you on the whole Mona bit. Like, I really like the fact that she sort of initiates the action. Like, that is obviously a very telling character moment, especially for what it sets up sort of right after, you know, the sequence, right? It's her sort of, you know, going to Japan, living out her dream. But I think it's sort of another interesting element to the mix, how motion is kind of employed in the film in general. Obviously, you know, you have this image of the balloon sort of floating up but like the still objects one thing i was really taken by is during the bar brawl you know you have lee kong and he's the only one sitting motionless in the bar while everyone else is sort of you know struggling for scraps or they're fighting each other having this brawl spills out in the streets and he'll he enters you know later outside he steps outside i think he brawls with uh Bo. Briefly, sort of setting up that you know his role as an antagonist you know if you reduce this 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 kind of ideological you know zero-sum game that you have with judo, you know, that you could even sort of view capitalism as win-lose. You know, it is very interesting, you know, that some people have acquired this sort of capital to stay still, right? They don't have to exert much effort. And then there's the issue of, you know, even Boss Savage, you know, he forces his way into every space he wants and no one can do anything. He has almost complete impunity. And, you know, that might be a commentary on the level of capital he's accrued, you know, through his own sort of exceptionalism. These three lost souls, you know, they sense sometimes you have to you have to move you have to let go it's all focused in this balloon i thought that was a really fascinating like intersection of all these things working together in the film it was and it was it was also just such a it was such a touching kind of vignette too i think among other things it it, it doesn't feel misplaced but it also kind of feels like this this almost like side quest for them all yeah, to yeah. just kind of undergo because they there's really no instigation of this other than Mona getting out of the cab but like what does that even come from you know and where do they go from there it's like this this scene this moment exists in a world entirely of its own for them but in the same way it or or, or like at the same time I should say it's it's completely indicative of like what the actual meaning of the film is and it's like you're gonna get thrown down but you gotta get back up yeah right exactly. and 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 when and these 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 scenes later on when tony and Bo start fighting they're they're just completely relishing in fighting they're like laughing as they get thrown down and they get back up you know like this is they finally have something worth getting up for which is like each other it's like their their friendship and it's it's such an endearingly melodramatic movie and i think there are a few filmmakers that are, that could really do that as well 
if anybody else tried to balance this amount of touching friendship as well as you know just amazing action it would become such a tonal mess right like oh yeah we, absolutely. we would think you know there there's so much room for people to think that something like this is contrived you know or forced but it just feels so right in the hands of of, of johnny toe and, and i don't mean that you know i think it's a it's really easy you know and anybody listening to this it's like oh these guys just like the filmmaker this is obviously biased and you know what you're probably right that's you know and but that's also fine because i think movies are meant to be are meant to be experienced like this by at least a few people and uh, it's just i can't stop i can't stop thinking about just the fact that he's able in a hundred like it's like it's sorry it's like 96 minutes long and yet you by the end of it you know when mona leaves you think that these people had known each other for like 20 years yeah yeah for sure no, I think another really interesting, you know, part of the montage, you know, that's one of my, you know, favorite thing to fixate on in a movie, the, like just the repetitive structure of it. Like you mentioned, Throwdown, obviously, is a very, it, it is a reference to sort of the, this karmic cycle almost of, you know, getting up and getting down, you know, no matter what life throws at you. And you have these repetitions throughout the structure itself. Jing, you know, he, he said, you know, every time he introduces himself to Bo, it's the sort of same line, you know, I'll be Sanshiro. Yubi Higaki. Well, I think in the original show or the original Kurosawa, Higaki's the master, right? The pawn has to move to the end of the board to become the queen. The idea that you have to keep throwing yourself in the cycle. And obviously that scene where they're distributing flyers, you know, him and you're sort of the judo master, they're distributing flyers on the street. You see that again. One time it's just Jing. And then by the end of the film, it's Bo. So you see the scene, you know, a couple of times and it comes up again and again. But I thought it was a really nice nod. You know, just this sort of internal structure of judo obviously if you want to loop in a criticism of capitalism you know people view it as a rat race it's also not very repetitive kind of motion you're imbricating game theory judo kinship capital like it's really ambitious for an hour 30 minute film and it it is is. really well done and and that's the thing too like toe rarely i don't know i don't i don't think i've ever seen a movie by him that's been more than like two hours i don't think i've seen a movie by him that's more than like an hour 50 so it's really, really a testament to just his ability to like manipulate character that he does these in such you know short run times. I think by today's standards, but I guess let's let's dive into what most people go to a Johnny Toe movie to see, or at least a Johnny Toe movie like this, and that is like you know how is the action? And obviously, it's awesome. It's you know every single every single scrum, every single judo fight. It's it's really amazing, and you're not gonna get the gunfighting that you see in something like The Mission or that you see in something like Exiled. But that's not really the point. You know, Throwdown, Judo is this like social contract, which maybe the same could be said about gunfighting in his other films. It just takes a different form. But, you know, it's such an intimate like social interaction between two people. And, and, and Toe just kind of treats these bodies as as like, beings to manipulate and to, and to kind of like toss through frames and to like throw onto mats and against walls and through tables you know but meanwhile like going back to maybe i guess the thesis of the movie is that they just keep getting <laughs> back up so it's yeah. almost like he's trying to exert his own authorial force on these guys he's like you know he's trying to throw them down but his characters are nevertheless resilient but like talking purely about action like what did you think just in general, not even Kurosawa, you know, Harakiri, you know, another sort of zero-sum 
you know, kind of situation, right? So I think the only, like, analog in my mind to compare it to is sort of Rashomon. You know, you have this very, you know, at the climax, obviously, spoiler alert, but, you know, there's a very deliberately choreographed, very drawn-out samurai battle, you know, sequence that occurs between Toshiro, the other actor in the, in the script. I don't remember his name, unfortunately. But, you know, the idea that it's very... Like, I think you mentioned in an earlier discussion that we had, you know, there isn't a focus there's a focus on suture you know the sense that you want to keep the action fluid you don't want to break from it to sort of dull its impact you know and you frame these bodies varying you know shot lengths right in Rashomon that you are filming them in a sort of wide you get like the sort of full body experience right and you mentioned earlier in the film uh Toe is filming very much from that perspective and as the film goes on you get these you sort of close in right the camera creeps in into these interactions so the idea that you know, there was a very deliberate choice between where the camera was positioned, you know, how that facilitates a kind of emotional connection to the characters compared to, you know, something like Rashomon or other samurai dramas. That was also really, you know, awesome sort of addition to the film. Absolutely. I also really love the way that he treats setting as like every single place in this movie feels like it could just erupt in in fighting. You know, like the the very the, the big fight that happens not halfway through, a little bit earlier than halfway through the film, the one where they introduce Lee Kong. And yeah. he's kind of like sitting alone watching all of these kind of like underlings or like doing their dirty work. Meanwhile, he doesn't have to worry himself about it, right? Yeah. Like the fight breaks out because Savage throws a table. He gets upset at something that I think Mona's agent says and he throws a table and then everybody starts fighting. And a couple times Johnny Toe sprinkles reaction shots of like Tony looking for Bo. And at that point in the film, you're wondering, is this because he wants to fight him in this situation? Or is he genuinely concerned for his like well-being? <laughs> and obviously, we get that amazing shot where Johnny Toe frames Lee Kong and Bo. Bo's on the, on the left side of the frame. He's like crumpled over like a piece of paper. And he, like, he pops the cap off of a beer. And then Lee Kong is just sitting super stoic and still with his drink in his hand. And that's when he says, you know, we were supposed to fight years ago, but now I see that you're not worthy of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's this, the, the, the scenes of fighting are meant to kind of, like, they're, they're meant to convey these, these, masculine, these masculine bodies. And then in that moment, it could be demasculine, but I also think that it has more to do just with the individual spirit and, like, this sense of honor, which is just toe repackaging these these honor motifs of of his uh, of Kurosawa and even of stuff like John Woo right you know yeah. like to have to have somebody like Lee Kong say that to Bo saying like you're not worthy of a fight with me now and, and you know that Bo probably believes it in that moment you know that he, yeah. he couldn't fight Lee Kong and then you know Toe doesn't stop there he actually shows Lee Kong leave the bar they have that insane crane shot where he lowers past the neon sign and all of these all of these these guys are out in the parking lot just just kicking the shit out of each other you know like everybody's flying around and it, he's shooting most of it in slow motion he's he's like in he's cutting between wides and he's cutting between like doubles of just two guys off in the corner you know throwing each other down it's very much this like this meticulously choreographed like ballet action doesn't just erupt and then it's this uncontrollable chain reaction i think it's very much and that's the thing i think that 
you could only do with judo because you know i i've never practiced judo in my life i don't really know anything about the sport but you know given like what this movie is trying to convey it's this like precise calculation of movements and it's about this like this negotiation between two practitioners of judo right like they're they're equals they're throwing each other down they're getting they're getting up you know like judo starts where they're holding on to each other's like uniforms their geese i think they're called you know yeah. it's not like they don't you know sometimes they start in a pose but like in official matches they're starting by holding on to each other so there's already this like programmed proximity that they have to you know then break away from but also just work with each other for you know despite them being a, an adversary or an enemy or whatever but then you know going back to lee kong comes out like a badass jumps over the railing undoes the button of his of his suit jacket and then just starts annihilating people he does his little move where he like he throws somebody down and then between his legs he holds their arm and i guess he breaks their arm or he dislocates their arm or something i think so yeah and then he just says you know my name is lee kong and like i only use this one move you know like he he has solidified himself so high up in this hierarchy of athletes that he knows he doesn't need to exert himself any more than this one thing because it's all he needs so now you know narratively we have this very distinct barrier that these these characters have to overcome and then you know tony wants to challenge lee kong and kong even says you know you should come to my dojo and we should fight and then you know not even 15 minutes later in the film tony goes over they fight he comes back to the bar he's like you know that guy's good meanwhile his arm's in a sling right (laughs) yeah so what like that that is probably my one of my favorite scenes in the movie is just that entire like outside because and another thing too if we want to talk about it stylistically is that when you mentioned this faux twilight what we're getting here is they're outside but you don't feel like they're exposed by the sun or the moon i mean it's happening at nighttime but they're completely drenched in in shadow and neon there's like nothing else and yeah. it, and it just becomes this like he's cutting on action and it almost becomes this like collection of tableaus and it's just it's just so amazing seeing somebody do a, an action set piece like that you know lee kong had you know he sort of mastered this one move and he, he's like just straight up dislocating people's arms and i think you know something maybe a little ambiguous is just the way the body itself is treated obviously you mentioned there's a sort of tableau like quality to you know to the language being used especially in the slow motion right there's an interest individual muscles or you know nerves they move right and they're shown in the film and the idea that they're also treated as very what's the word like i guess they can be breaking down right there's a focus on you know broken arms you know you know lost vision in the pursuit of judo that the body is an expendable sort of force they're fragile yeah there's a fragility yeah. yeah you already mentioned you know judo as this very you know honor bound practice right and it does take take me back to kind of you know sergio leone's kind of approach to you know westerns right i think once upon a time in the west this whole sort of deal was kind of considering how conflicts would start up in this sort of environment right where capital but it's is very sparse you have to fight for crumbs of it and there's a choreography to the way these situations unfold and you very much see the dna of that whether intentional or not in the bar fight you know even in the arcade you know where the tension doesn't build up you know quite you know to the level you expect it to but the idea that you sort of seedy kind of underground dens everything is it's a pressure cooker right they build up into these very highly ritualized 
very one-on-one kind of confrontations. I thought it was a very cool, you know, parallel, you know, between not even just judo, you know, martial arts, but the Western, the samurai, all of these sort of share similar patterns. And I think that is, you know, sort of something worth considering, you know, the images he's putting out here. I like that you bring up, uh, like you reiterated on our piece, it just got me thinking, thinking back to PTU, which was the first Johnny Toe film that I watched. And it's, uh, it's about like this police task force that are kind of patrolling Hong Kong at night. But it's, it's very much a, a movie that humanizes the almost like the very oppressive, inhumane actions of police officers. And it got me thinking of the way that Johnny Toe, his, his like, his entire deal is about squeezing every drop of honor about what we think are the dishonorable underground professions and activities of the world and of Hong Kong. You know, like the mission, Exiled, it's very much, those are movies about fraternity within criminal power, you know, structures and hierarchies. And throw down, I'm not saying that judo is, you know, a bad thing. I'm just saying that we don't actually ever see an, an official match of judo. There's never judo is never practiced in a competition or in a tournament. Tony puts up that poster that there is going to be a tournament, but when Bo shows up to the to, to the tournament hall, he he can't get in. It's not that he like you know, it's not like that he's like a security guard. It's like, hey, you can't come in. He like personally, individually cannot, he cannot ascend back to that level of sportsmanship. He has been relegated to this underground practice, very much in the same way that this, these heroic yeah. bloodshed movies that he does do the same for their, their hitmen and their assassins. He hides away from the light. You know, you notice Bo in, in sunlight, he acts very, very like out of his own skin, very jittery. Like when he's trying to pay Tony, when they're running after the bus and, and moments like that, you know, he feels comfortable. He looks and acts comfortable when he's, you know, shrouded in, in these, in these neon nighttime scenarios. Yeah. There's just so much, I think, stylistically. And I wanted also to bring up there's one scene that that kind of stuck out to me that I that I almost felt I almost felt like was a bit weird and misplaced the first time I watched him. And it was the scene where Mona is eating at the restaurant with Jing and and Bo and Jing's master. They're eating like steaks, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like this like this final little send-off, but I think between like an older and a younger generation. Yeah. I was curious what you thought of that scene. Yeah, I mean, going back to like, you know, Jing's sort of point about, you know, I'll be Sancho, you be Higaki. You know, I do not know the background of the original, but the idea that I'm not sure if Higaki passes away, but the idea that the sort of dynamic is made, you know, totally explicit, that is worth looking into, especially considering, you know, that Bo obviously explicitly takes his place by the end. He's the one distributing the flyers and he sort of has to live up to that legacy. But I think, you know, just in terms of, you know, the composition, you know, another shot that's sort of repeated is when he goes back to the dojo, or sorry, Bo goes back to the dojo, and then he has, I think he eats noodles or steaks again with Jing there. And it's, I think it's the very second shot in the film, right after they're in the reeds. You know, obviously the master is there, but you know, just what you get, just by replicating the composition and putting Bo in his place there, this dynamic is almost, you know, you could not hear a bit of dialogue in this film, and it would still be very clear to you, you know, what's actually going on. Visually, this whole master-student dynamic, he was made explicit at every turn. 
and it's done so you know with a you know a repetition that is you know now just sort of judo structure of the film which i think is really great absolutely no absolutely i think i i I, i'm glad that you brought up the the mirroring of the 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 second shot as well as when Bo finally like kind of like assumes his position back within the world you know purely comprised of judo yeah i think that like jing acts as this character this very you know lost lovable character that's always trying to like find someone to like help him around and help him navigate these things you know when he's when that i guess like social worker or something when the one woman is telling him he doesn't need to bring his flyers with him where they're going it's like these are the only material connections that he has to this like this world that he wants to belong to yeah so that's why whenever he hands him out on the street and somebody like throws it on the ground he scrambles to go and pick it up because like these are this is the evidence this is the proof and these are the only like mementos that he has to prove that he like belongs to these things yeah and and, you know more on jing too i love the way that toe uses jing singing to score a lot of the action sequences he very much like it exists within the diegesis of the movie both times during the the big uh club to parking lot fight jing first goes up to the the karaoke microphone and starts singing yeah he follows everybody out of the building he introduces himself to the bouncer and then i'm pretty sure he starts singing again afterwards which is just he he almost acts as this uh this like this chorus character who's like always around like we he doesn't practice judo whether that's some sort of physical limitation or or whether he just never got into it but he's very much a fan and i think he's a fan and he's a spectator in the same way that we are and and you know jing is the one that's kind of always reiterating the sanshiro illusion of singing the tv show theme you know, all, I mean, this is this has to be evidence that like they exist in a world where Sanshiro Sugata exists. Yeah. So, you know, Johnny Toe is, is just absolutely superimposing his love for this Kurosawa myth into his own film world. Yeah. Another thing, I think, just the, on the idea of material possessions, I feel like I should sort of apologize before I launch into this. You know, but you know, I don't mean to sort of find you know these deliberate parallels or illusions and everything, but. You know, there is something to be said, you know, about the fact that these flyers that you mentioned, right? At the very onset of the film, you know, they sort of fly away from his hand. And he goes back to pick them up quite quickly, which on the surface, you know, doesn't seem like much. It's just very, you know, it's an expression of his character. But I don't think we could really stage a discussion of this film without mentioning when Mona escapes from the gambling den. She's taking all this money with her. It's flying out behind her. You know, I, whether that's a deliberate parallel, hey. You know, we can't really confirm that. It's not like we can ask Toe right now. But the idea that, you know, these motions are sort of contrasted, right? You have capital mm-hmm. versus a very extant sort of reminder, you know, of kinship for Jing, right? And the idea that, you know, even though the money leaves Mona's hands, you know, she's not, you know, as fast to sort of go back and pick it up, right? Because obviously she has a lot in her hands in the moment, but one is sort of framed as, you know, expendable. And the other is, it's something we cling to, right? It's our reminder of humanity, you know, in our everyday quotidian kind of life. So I think the contrast between those two, Jing's sort of serving as a spectator kind of, you know, self-insert, you know, to a degree. I think all those sort of work together fabulously. Yeah, and even and even to go further with the scene where Bo loses all his money and then Mona is like, you know, no way. Like, yeah. you just, you know, how could you? And then instead of just like, you know, accepting it, she takes the money and they run. 
And then Bo loses his shoe. And for a moment, Mona, she loses sight completely of these, of, 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 you know, the material in front of her, the money to give Bo his shoe back. But then, and I don't think this is out of a, out of a, like a self-interest when she does this, but when she, when she does her, her like trek back to pick up more money and those three goons are all crouched down in the alleyway, Toe frames this in, in this really amazing horizontal composition very like i think he evokes a lot of yojimbo and uh, sanjiro in it where you have these shots of mifune walking through the main streets of villages and he has this horde of people behind him you know this these two planes uh, of action is very much another kurosawa i think link but then it breaks out into this almost this choreographed dance where they start crouch walking across the ground picking up money you know adversarially but also collectively because like the goons aren't going after mona anymore because they know that they need to like get the money before they get her and mona kind of knows the same so she knows she can get away with stuff she can get away with like getting more in that in that moment but i love this like stare down this like this mutual understanding and how like toe renders that physically when they start to almost move in sync you know, it's almost this like musical level choreography that I think happens a couple of times in the movie. And it's just this distinct formal understanding of how to use bodies oh, and yeah. how to like how to move and manipulate bodies in the frame. Right. Uh, and also, sorry, just uh, one last yeah, thing. Bad. Like the, the setting of the alleyway so greatly contrasts to the setting of this like yellow nightclub. And yet they almost feel the same in that boat is just like nevertheless detached you know he just kind of like wavers through these these settings but what were you gonna say go ahead oh sort of like to you know kind of you know double back to the sean gilman piece you know obviously you know that scene of her running you know, the shoe as a sort of you know melodramatic object imbued with this kind of meaning obviously is contrasted with her leaving to go to japan and i think you know we briefly discussed you know gilman sort of conclusion on it that he kind of runs with the ambiguity of that freeze frame at the end where she's smiling and he sort of kind of concedes that you know she's very much going to be part of the same system goons were when they were collecting the money right that there is no definitive happy ever after in a setting like this or under you know sort of capitalist sort of structure so she's just going to keep chasing that dream in perpetuity you know that she's also she's in their place and i don't know like do you have any strong thoughts on it because i sort of disagree with that assessment i'm maybe just the optimist in me but i yeah yeah, and i i think i think i think i would push back a little bit on it too insofar as that i think that the use of the freeze frame you know like you know transfixing mona in time and space I don't I don't think I could be as pessimistic about it mainly because I think it's just an it's it's a formal extension of of what Toe is is using melodrama and like this endearing melodrama for. Yeah. You know, Mona Mona's at the end of Mona's narrative. You know, we, we it's not the type of movie that's going to follow her to Japan. Yeah. Right? And and giving her the freeze frame is I think the best closure or send-off that you could give a character like that because you know, while she sits transfixed in the alleyway like that, right? Her final words are like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and like succeed. Like I'm going to go and do well in Japan. Yeah. And 
if we think about the use of freeze frame in, in other movies, I I can't help but think that it it's the type of closure that means a, a kind of happy ending. Yeah. Like there's something beyond that. And, you know, maybe that's me pulling too much in from other texts, but I, I do think that I agree with you more that it, it it's not so much her succumbing to this like cynical capital world driven worldview so much or or like, you know, she she's getting thrown down once again. I think that Mona had her time getting thrown down and like this is her kind of succeeding at the very end. Yeah, just sort of going back to the getting back up. I mean, if we're sort of approaching this through the lens of melodrama, right, then I don't think it's crazy to say you could take the balloon scene. Sort of just contrast it with her predicament here. It's very much her getting back up. And I guess sort of going back to, you know, the point you made about, you know, the cash or the flyers, right? The sort of last remnant we see of Mona is this postcard she sends to Bo from Japan. It's like, I'll make you dinner when I'm famous. The idea that this becomes another, you know, memento he can hold on to. You know, the event, just like the flyers that Jing had, I think that's another sort of way of looping in this sort of melodramatic structure and does suggest this sort of optimistic end for her. So, yeah, I'm with you. Like, I could probably never be that pessimistic for that ending. You know, not to say, you know, the Gilman piece is terrible. It's a really well-written piece of work. You know, obviously, you know, when you have a frame as ambiguous as that, people are going to walk away with different meanings. But just to sort of push back against that, I do think, we can either settle with the ambiguity or we can look at it a little optimistically. I'll probably go with the latter on that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also just a testament to why it's so important to read, you know, other people's writing about movies. Yeah. Like you and I obviously feel so strongly about this movie and no doubt Sean Gilman feels so strongly about this movie. Like Sean Gilman is, is, is well known for writing on Hong Kong specifically and it's national cinema. And I've read some of his stuff before, but it's also just like, there's 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 no good in, in no difference of opinion and if there's something like to take maybe from this podcast is that we're always looking for a difference of opinion you know Krishiv and i we both have such an overlap in taste and in opinion that i think it'd be hard for us to in general to disagree on something so when we do this when we find pieces that we may or may not completely agree with it's not because we're wrong and it's not because the piece is wrong it's because that's how malleable movies are that's why we're here talking about this movie that's why we're going to be talking about movies for weeks to come it's because it's 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 just so damn fun and it's just so damn interesting to do that i think as a final thing i want to talk about i do want to talk about the bookend uh of the beginning of the end yeah so do you want to how about for everybody why don't you like take us through like what happens at the beginning and what happens at the end we open you know, on this crane shot from the skyscraper all the way down to the reeds. And it's the final confrontation between Lee Kong and Bo is also, you know, staged against these exact same reeds. You know, scored by Jinx singing, you know, the song of Sancho needing to get up. You sort of face, you know, the you know his problems in life sort of head on. You're very carrying these very deliberate contrasts. And, you know, I think to a degree, the audience kind of knows Bo will be successful. That is sort of the expectation. But you obviously, you know, just by repeating these two, or sorry, repeating the same image, you know, twice, kind of bookend fashion, you know, you get very separate effects, right? One is sort of, you know, setting up CD faux twilight, like I mentioned before. And now you have, he's going blind. That sort of view of the world is sort of fading from him in a very figurative and literal sense, divorcing himself from this world of capital. He's sort of free from his kind of 
inability to live up to his master's name or you know you know help out his dojo all these sort of coalesce at this one scene i thought that was i've said it a lot but obviously you know great sort of bookend great way to structure it you know i'm a big Mm -hmm. fan but how about you how do you feel about it well i think it's really amazing that he kind of inverts the crane from the beginning because he starts in the skyscraper and goes down to the to the to the reed and the, the long grass setting but then in the end i think the sequencing is you have you have this dutch angle kind of crane out but before he can get to the to the skyscraper skitty, uh, city line excuse me he cuts to jing and bo on the street corner handing out flyers and then he goes to this like sun drenched city like cityscape yeah uh and that's when he actually throws up the end title card and it's just like i think gilman refers to to kurosawa's ron with that you know i think there's a lot i think there's a lot to say about japanese cinema cinematic illusion in general to that final shot because who loves to do who loves to do shots of of suns over harbors more than japanese filmmakers right because obviously it's a king lear adaptation you know the central character is a king who's going blind so the yeah. idea that you're contrasting, you know, sunset, you know, with the sort of mise en is, you know, it's enmeshed in the mise en scène, right? The this idea mm-hmm. of faux twilight or this view of the world, this very rosy view of the world, but you know, it's fundamentally inaccessible to the protagonist. I think in an ideal world, this this episode would run for three hours and we would just be talking <laughs> yeah. about Throwdown. But for I think for the sake of like everybody listening and, and maybe for the sake of time, we'll uh, we'll try and keep it a bit brief. But no, I'm glad, and and I think that's just. That's that's just a testament also to the how this how good this movie is. Yeah. You know, like whether or not like the the sun is setting or the sun is you know the is rising, I, I think we can probably confirm that it, it looks to be setting. But you know, we know it and if that's supposed to be Bo, if we know that his sun is setting, we know that it's it's just gonna rise again. You know, it's about going down and coming back up. That's that's what it's always been about. And there's there's a little scene in the final kind of showdown between Lee Kong and Sido Bo that I wanted to mention, and I really really love this part, especially on 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 behalf of of Tony Leung Kafai, where he he's blindfolded to make it even because obviously Bo by then is blind, and his his blind in their scrum his blindfold falls down. I hope I'm using scrum right for the record. I feel like that's a rugby term, but anyways, in their confrontation where they're holding onto each other's geese, I should say. His blindfold falls down and he looks he looks into the eyes of Bo and but Bo is not looking back. And yet his his face is just so determined. He's so determined. He he's not the guy that Lee Kong saw in the bar that night. He's a completely different athlete. He's like completely re-immersed himself in judo. Yeah. And you know, in one last little moment of, you know, honor. You know, Lee squinches his eyes. He he crunches his eyes together. He's like he's like, you know, he doesn't even he doesn't even just close his eyelids. He's like, he realizes his mistake, like this little mistake. Like yeah. really, who cares? Who's gonna see it? But he like he closes his eyes together because he knows that he has to keep this this confrontation, this fight, as equal as possible, as honorable as possible. Yeah. And you know, when he, when he concedes defeat because he can't take Bo down with his move. You know, he walks off like in this Dutch angle. He just kind of disappears. Yeah. And then as Jing sings, so too do Bo and Tony kind of disappear and walk away too. And I think it's just this this really amazing, almost like fairy tale ending. Lee Kong wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't even an enemy. Yeah. You, know, you could call him the antagonist, but he was just an adversary in the same discipline. 
and maybe it was just his time to get thrown down. Yeah, right? exactly, right? Yeah. So I think, I, unless, do you have any closing thoughts? Let's hear them. What, what are your closing thoughts on Throwdown? Well, actually, just sort of an addendum to the last point I made, I feel like that was also the closest, you know, sort of Sean Gilman piece, the sort of parallel to the whole King Lear idea, so I will take no credit for that. You know, that just sort of came up, but that is 100% Sean Gilman. Suffice right. it to say, thank you, Sean Gelman, for writing the thank piece. Thank you, yeah. Closing thoughts, I really need to watch more Johnny Toe. I don't know, you know, what else I can say, but, I, you know, it's a fascinating entry point. Obviously, you know, the fact that we're talking about it, I would highly recommend it to anyone out there who wants to sort of, you know, you know, sort of broaden their taste in Hong Kong cinema or just get into Johnny Toe. You know, I sort of, you know, need to start, you know, my process of sort of, you know, getting up. Yeah, after being thrown onto the mat, you know, and sort of getting into Johnny Toe's filmography. But yeah, you? Absolutely. No, I, I think you said it really well yourself. Uh, anybody, I want to thank everybody that listened to, to our debut episode. You will all have to find out what we'll be doing in a bit of a special episode. Um, but thank you for listening to this episode of Dolly Back. Please go out and watch Throwdown. There will be a link in the description or in the info for this episode to Sean Gilman's piece on Criterion. And we will see you next time.